Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, authors, theologians, political pundits, media people, and assorted others about the lens through which they experience life. Have you ever wondered how a writer gets over writer's block? I can tell you how one writer did. Will Dowd decided to spend a year writing about the weather in his native New England. At the end of that year, Areas of Fog was born. It's a great book. In it, Will takes us on a whimsical journey through a year of New England weather. These essays are incredibly engaging, and they're as unpredictable as the subject. I mean, who ever knows exactly what the weather will do, particularly in New England? Areas of Fog combines wit and poetry with humor and real erudition. The essays are deep, moving, and penetrating, and yet it's still a fun read at the same time. It's a great book, and Will and I had a great conversation about it. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Will Dowd. Well, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you've written a great book, Areas of Fog, and it, it's interesting because you talk about writer's block and how you did have it. Yes, I wrote into it, which is the only way out, I think. No, some writers, like, I mean, recently, I guess I've heard, uh, who wrote, uh, Michael Lewis, is it? The guy who wrote, like, Moneyball. Yeah, and uh, Boomerang. Boomerang, yeah. All of, yeah. He yeah. said, history was, like, you, you, that there isn't, it's writer's block is you're writing bad things. <laughs> like, stuff can come <laughs> out of you. It's just not, or, or that, but, but, so, I mean, that's his experience, but I mean, so this is, is this sort of, I guess this is a live debate, right? Like, is there such a thing, right? I mean, there's schools of thought on this. Absolutely. It, I mean, I think it would be different and individual for each writer. I find it uh, comical when writers make grand pronouncements, like as if they're, they represent all writers. So yeah, I have heard some people dismiss writer's block. Um, and some, some of them often invoke a kind of like, Hey, you know, a coal miner can't wake up one day and decide not to go to the, the coal mine. You know, they, they can't have coal mine block. Um, and so they kind of use that as a way to dismiss writer's block, but it's very different, uh, mining coal to, um, communicating with a stranger, um, which at a distance and separated in time, which is writing. So it's, it's very easy to, to, uh, get lost because writing is not immediate. It's not that connected and it's easy to, uh, for some static to come on that line. So yeah, I think, um, I think writer's block is definitely a reality. It was a reality for me and I don't think anyone should be ashamed of it. Do you think in some ways is it connected? I, I've heard people describe depression as something where it, the debilitating nature of real like when you're really clinically depressed is that so much of human being is motivated by desire. Like I, I, I'm going to get up and do this. Even if I don't want to do this, I'm going to do it because the thing I want down the road involves this. Like I might not love this job, but I'm trying to get this kind of life or this kind of, or I, you know, I'm going to go to this movie to blow off steamer. And, and talking about like the really deep depression takes, almost steals the ability to desire. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I know exactly what you mean. I've, uh, uh, sadly been, you know, around people who have been, uh, in, in true clinical depression. Uh, I know that word gets bandied about a lot, but when, when you're, I, I've never experienced, uh, that particular, uh, mental illness, but when you're, when you're with somebody, it, it, it you, they are zapped of whatever spark is, 
is what we take for granted when we're not depressed. And it's very disconcerting to watch because you can see the incredible amount of energy they have to muster just to pick up a cup of water or to form a word. And so, um, you know, in the case of my writer's block, which feels absolutely uh, inappropriate to compare to someone in the depths of depression, but the I had all the creative energy. I had tons of energy. I just didn't have a subject. And so that was my problem. And I had, I, I didn't know what to write about. And I think it was part of a function of having gone off on this kind of journey with, in, in getting formally educated and going to grad school. And then I moved back to my hometown. And I think a lot of people have that experience when you've been gone for a while and you come back and you're a different person, but the town is the same and you just don't know how you fit in anymore or who you are or what just happened. And, I just lost kind of the train of what is my subject? What, what how am I going to what's going to be the venue for my creative energy? And so that's when I hit upon using the weather. And that's why I did, I, t- I did the very strange thing of keeping a weather journal for a year, which very improbably became this book, Areas of Fog. Yeah. And you, you write about the weather as a New Englander, I mean, in a very particular yes. way. And I think I heard you say somewhere in an, an interview somewhere, you talked about particularity and how in this global age, I was thinking when you said it, this challenge of not knowing what to do with your own passion for particularity. I mean, G.K. Chesterton in an essay sort of responding to Rudyard Kipling's cosmopolitanism says something like, you know, Kipling's like, you, you, you can't really love England, unless you've been to China and India, da, da. and and Chesterton says something along the lines of, "You can't love England unless you only love England, or only be, like he's, you know this. There's this rootedness that has to get in your bones, and this kind of he thought the cosmopolitanism. You don't know anything. You don't love England. You don't. You don't really experience rice patties in Vietnam. You don't really experience this. Like you, you have a, this superficial kind of connection to it. So he thought this right. cosmopolitanism right. was really a thinness." Um, and if anything could be said about areas of fog, it's thick. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> thank you. I mean, you're, it's just interesting. Your interpretation of the significance of weather for New Englander. And, and, and you really bring that out in, in, in pretty textured deep ways. <laughs> right. I think there's, there's a benefit to, uh, leaving home and then coming back because you can sort of see what's different and special about where you grew up. But yeah, as you alluded to, I think regional difference um, is important. Uh, I, I know we're in this globalizing world and things are getting flattened out, but I think it would be uh, a real shame if people uh, just all started speaking the same language, uh, talking with the same accent, and lost some of the unique character uh, of where they came from. And And that was part of my way out of this bout of writer's block is – I decided to again lean into this annoying regional habit we have in New England of talking incessantly about the weather. It is just this, uh, a, a true regional preoccupation. And it's sort of almost comical how, how much we, we discuss it. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized it really is because in New England, we experience the weather as communal. Um, it's something that unites us all. It kind of cuts across class and every, everything. And so, uh, the weather, that's why I think we, we always use the weather when we're starting a conversation with a stranger, like at a bus stop. Um, it's because 
you know, it's this, it's this common ground and it's a great way to start a conversation. And for someone who was a writer who felt like they'd not, you know, I, at the time, I, you know, I'm a new writer. I didn't, I don't have a readership. I'm not Dan Brown. No one's waiting for my next, uh, European, uh, you know, art history mystery. Um, I, I, it's a leap of faith that someone's going to read this, whatever, whatever I'm writing. And so I felt like the reader was a stranger. And so therefore I should approach them as I would anybody, um, on, you know, the, the, the train, uh, Start with the weather, start neutral, start with something we can both uh, agree upon, and then you can go somewhere wild. So that was my scheme. Where did you go to graduate school? Uh, so after undergrad, I, I, I went to MIT and uh, I did a degree there and then, I, and then I went to NYU. So I did a kind of science thing and then I did a uh, creative uh, writing thing. And so uh, I remember getting kind of confused looks from the teachers I asked for recommendations uh, it made sense to me, but um, on the outside, I could see people were a bit a bit puzzled by the combo. What when when did you notice you know moving away and going to school? At what point did you notice? Look, I talk about the weather differently, and oh, it's cousin from New England, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, even even um even when I went to undergrad, although I went I went to a New England school, there was mostly students from around the country and most of my friend group there was from other parts of the country. Yeah. They just, it was different. Um, it's funny. Like people just don't have the sense of affliction that we have in new England. We take the weather very personally. Um, I've, you know, I think we talk about it often, like it's really sentient and it's, it's kind of, uh, doing something to us. And I would see people from other parts of the country uh, coming into New England and just feeling like, yeah, okay, I got to climb up this mountain of snow. But in New England, we just felt like, uh, you know, we've we've been uh, there's a trickster god playing with us. So yeah, we we um we definitely have a more uh, I think personal relationship with the weather and an obsession. Other people just seem to get on with it, but we harp on it. <laughs> yeah, and you talk about in the book how there's not enough terminology for winter yeah yeah right. so I, as i was reading i was thinking of game of thrones where winter is like everything right it's this, <laughs> yes it's, it's it's this looming thing that and i was just thinking about that's interesting not having enough words for winter we don't and i you know i talk about in the book the japanese uh, i think because of their haiku tradition and and for other reasons they have an incredible vocabulary for weather they're very specific words they i mean they have a word for um, sort of winter, winter confinement, that, that feeling of almost like cabin fever that comes seasonally in the winter. Um, and that's just not something we have, but we absolutely should because who doesn't experience that, especially if you're up here in the Northeast? Um, so yeah, so I, I, I laid out some, uh, some, you know, aspects of New England weather that I thought should have a word. One of them being the sound that your windshield wipers make when you go out on a frosty, snowy morning and first turn them on and they just creak across the windshield and make this horrible screeching noise that seems to just dig into your soul and you're just freezing and you have to go to work and, oh, and it's miserable. There should be a word for that. You tell the story of this haiku poet, Shida Yaba, right? Yes. Who lived in like the 17th died in the early 18th century, 1740. Mm -hmm. And you said on uh, his deathbed, he wrote, in this floating world, a voice calls winter shower. And 
You say that it was customary for haiku poets to jot down a haiku in the final moments of, of their life. And you talk about this pressure uh, of, of having to do this and the students being all around them. And I love this. You say, truth be told, the lines above are actually Yaba's second to last haiku. His last haiku was just plain bad. So his students, now his readers, pretend it never happened. We have to look out for each other. And I, I, I thought that was a beautiful uh, sentiment, like, how did you move that from from this his students editing it to to we have to look out for each other? Like, can you say what's behind those? Because I there's a lot I read behind it, but I'd like to hear you just talk for a minute about that phrase about having to look out for each other. Yeah, I just thought it. You know, uh, the Japanese death poems are a tradition, and it was very sort of formal that a, ja- a master haiku poet would have these kind of disciples um, who would be training and then sort of caring for them in old age. And the deathbed poem was this important tradition. And I just can't imagine anything more, uh, any more pressure of a deadline, you know, than, okay, you're on your deathbed, you're busy dying, and you've got to produce this perfect haiku that is in somehow going to reverberate down the ages and, uh, sort of sum up you, the wisdom of your entire life. And I just, I think it's inhumane to expect that of an artist, of anybody. And so I just love that his students sort of swept the inferior final uh, haiku under the rug and took the second to last one and said, this is the last one because it was better and it had the power and it had had what they, what they, what you would want. And I just think it's a, it was such an act of kindness to look after this poet's posthumous reputation. And um, it was certainly not presented in that way in the literature, but that, you know, part of what I, it's a poetic license is, is to think, uh, think your way into the situation and find the emotions that might not be explicit. I mean, the book is not very personal. I don't talk a lot about uh, my own emotions. And yet to me, it's also a very personal book because uh, everything's a little bit, it's sort of, I use emotional displacement. So to me, this was a, I was in the, it was in the middle of winter. I was extremely, you know, lonely. And, um, I, I found, I was, I was finding emotion in this, uh, um, in this haiku situation from, as you said, the 18th century. And, um, so yeah, it was, it was definitely me possibly projecting, but I think it's, I think it's really there. Yeah, and I, when I read that, it struck me as such a contrast to our public life today, where nobody looks at, nobody tries to give somebody a break, right? Everybody right. tries to catch someone in an inconsistency in a gotcha moment, right? And, and and this is, you know, we're so tribal, you know, that that it it seems like our public life is animated by the opposite spirit of those of those words in that sense. Absolutely. I I mean, I have to say part of the reason I chose to write about the weather and then I write so much about the past is is from a a kind of, I I mean, I feel repulsed by internet culture, by social media, by the prevailing, uh, I don't know, just the way people interact now. It feels very vicious. And like you said, gotcha. And I I don't like that. Um, that's not you know that's not how I want to live. That's not how I want to interact with people. And so sometimes uh, the uh, delving into the past and into these, I mean, to me it's a very uh, humane. Uh, I mean, a deathbed scene where someone's trying to compose 
a poem. Um, it, you know, I, I don't know anybody who's going to compose a tweet on their deathbed. <laughs> you know, so I, I, I Donald like Trump, using, Mike, Donald Trump. Mike. Right. <laughs> this is the most fantastic <laughs> death. <laughs> yeah, this is the yeah right. This death is bigger than all the other deaths that came before it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like, uh, we're going, we're in an odd time right now. And so, um, uh, yeah, I, it's this, this felt like, uh, the part of this project was to restore a little bit of soul and kindness, uh, into, into my life and, and hopefully into others. And you, you sort of took, undertook this project. You wrote these pieces on Sundays, right? That's right. And which I think changed them a lot. I think if I was writing them on like a Wednesday, they, they wouldn't have turned out the way they had. Um, because I, I, you know, I, I no longer go to church, but I did for 17 years. And, uh, what, so what tradition was that? Like what, what kind of? I grew up like Irish Catholic. So it was okay. Catholic church around Boston. And, uh, um, that is the most colorful religious identity. <laughs> There's nothing boring about that. Like it's the quintessential interesting religious identity. Oh yeah. It was wild. I mean, uh, in, a, in particular, so it, you know, and I didn't just go, I, I became, um, a Eucharistic minister when I was, um, like it's still a teenager, like 15 to 17 years old. I was a Eucharistic minister. So I was part of the, uh, the sacrament every Sunday. And uh, so I was very involved. And, um, what, what made you want to be a Eucharistic minister? I mean, that's for a 15 year old kid. That's like, this is, that's a pretty serious, that, that's just not going to CYO dances or something. I mean, or, I mean, that's a, <laughs> right. that's a pretty significant statement that, Hey, I, yes. I, I'm, uh, I'm on the team. Um, here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, it was really, str- it was a really strange, uh, turn of events. Basically, um, I approached confirmation, which is, uh, in, uh, when I was about 15. And before confirmation, you have to go to confession. I mean, technically, you should be going to confession regularly. But again, I, you know, when you're Boston Irish Catholic, you tend to just do things when you have to. I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, I went to confession and I had been reading, you know, Emerson and Thoreau and the transcendentalists and starting to have kind of my own budding religious ideas. So you're saying you're uh, a really shallow kid. You want to be a Eucharistic <laughs> minister, right. read Emerson and Thoreau. I mean, really, a th- really <laughs> no depth to you as a teenager. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was probably extremely pretentious teenager. But no, I was, it was funny. I, I had a, you know, even though I've done all this schooling, I've always felt like an autodidact because I really started reading young and on my own and, and finding my own way. So yeah, I'd read a lot. And when I went to confession with the priest who was somewhat new, um, I, you know, I, I just told him what I actually thought, you know, and I said, I don't know if I need the church in order to have a spiritual experience. I don't know if I need a mediator, you know, I was, uh, this is just what I was thinking. And he just very calmly and clearly explained that I was committing a mortal sin that um I would be going to hell. And so what he said in basically in an effort to save me, he said, "Well, why don't you I'll make you a Eucharistic minister. You can be part of the sacrament and you will feel the literalness of the transubstantiation. You will feel the Holy Spirit sort of whoosh into the room and go into these wafers. And as you're distributing them, you, you will be filled with the Spirit of God. It, it will not be a metaphor. It will be a physical, um, and tangible experience. And so 
you know, that's I, I a said, big yeah. bet on Aristotelian metaphysics. <laughs> I mean, I mean that, that's a big gamble. <laughs> he had, I mean, this guy. And so how do you say no to that? Cause it's like, okay, well, you know, I've, I, I felt like, you know, intellectually I was kind of moving, I was moving in another direction, but here was this guy saying, this will be physical proof. Um, that what I'm saying is right and, and why you need me and the church is right. So I said, okay. And, and I went in with a, with an open heart and an open spirit. I, I didn't go in as a kind of skeptic who was just going to play this role cynically. I went in thinking, all right, I will, I will try this and, and see what happens. I'll believe and, uh, see if, see if I experience the magic. And so I did it for, for a number of years, for a couple of years as a teenager. And, you know, it was interesting to be sort of behind the scenes and be, be part of the mass. Um, but I have to say, I, I did not experience what he had promised and I continued to have more powerful spiritual experiences, like sitting by a pond at sunset, you know, and so, or reading, um, or in solitude. And so, yeah, so I ended up, um, when, when it was a kind of natural breaking point to go off to college, that's where my uh, formal religious um, experiences trailed off. Um, so it was, so it was, you know, it was, a t- it was, it was, you know, I gave it, I gave it a shot, but of course, as you get older and you read more, you know, I come, I've, I've been reading different types of Christian, uh, thinkers, Christ, uh, um, Christian apologists who have a, a more capacious view of the Christian tradition and a little less literal. And, and, uh, and, and those are always challenging and interesting for me to read. So it's, um, the tradition has definitely deepened, um, as I've gotten older and I've moved away from that very literal interpretation. But, um, I still have this, this expectation somewhere in my, uh, limbic system that Sunday morning you go and you hear a sermon. So when I wrote this book on Sunday mornings, um, you know, it's a book about the weather, but sort of knitted through it. It's filled with ghosts and, and, um, spiritualism and, uh, looking for patterns and trying to see if, if me, if the world is a, is a, is, is authored or, or the product of accident. I think that's probably the, the philosophical through line through the book and the questioning. So the questions are still there yeah. for me. Can you, you actually, there's a point in the book where you say, I've never given a sermon before and here's my shot. Can, can <laughs> yes. you read that passage? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be happy to. Um, let me find it. Yeah. This is called a certain unwholesome sultriness and it's from September. Uh, would you like me to read the whole thing or just the sermon aspect of it? You can read the whole thing. It's short. I'm going to read the, I'm going to yeah. read the whole thing. Okay. The first week of September brought forth a heat so biblical that we New Englanders wandered around mopping sweat from our eyes and confessing to uncommitted murders. Finally, a long forecast storm arrived on Saturday evening and lit blue matches in the sky. Thunder rumbled like the apneic snores of a sleeping god. That metaphor, thunder is the awful voice of God, comes straight from the Puritans. I always think of them around this time of year, when we're in the throes of late summer mugginess. I imagine them bundled up in their corsets and petticoats and capes and linen caps, and I wonder how they clung to sanity. I suppose they had their faith. Yet how much consolation did they find in their Calvinist reading of the world? According to their belief in predestination, a few select souls will spend the afterlife in unimaginable, seraphic bliss, while the rest are damned to hell. And here's the rub. Just who is saved and who is damned is fixed before birth, before time began, in fact. All that's left to do is to worry. 
To me, it seems predestined that the Puritans should have ended up in New England. Is there a better climate on earth for worrying about the state of your soul? If you can't feel God's grace, just wait five minutes. Puritan sermons were, of course, filled with weather. From high pulpits, preachers bellowed about hellfire humidity and clarifying frosts. In my life, I've never delivered a single sermon. Here goes. In August 1637, just a few miles from where I live, a woman named Anne Needham Hett was in such distress over her spiritual estate that she threw her newborn daughter into a well. Now I am sure I shall be damned for I have drowned my child, she announced. Someone rushed to the well and pulled the girl out in time. Five years later, in the same state of mind, Anne stripped her three-year-old son naked and threw him into the deepest section of the creek behind her house. Someone passing by dove in and pulled the boy out in time. This was the last straw. Anne was whipped and excommunicated, and when she was allowed back into the fold a few years later, it was only because she had reconciled herself to abiding uncertainty. She had to live the rest of her life not knowing what weather awaited her after death. One thing, however, she could be certain of. Her children were definitely among the saved. That's, uh, that's beautiful. Um, Thank you. I wonder... So, tell me about the the certainty. Is that is that sort of? Are you saying that tongue in cheek there, the certainty, or is it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, to me, so, so I, you know, so I think a, probably a my, okay. My old priest would, <laughs> you know, would have would have read this story in a much different way. Um, but I read it again. Um, you know, I, 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 I read this story. I mean, it's a, it's a horrifying story, um, of this woman who was, who was in such a extreme stress over her spiritual, um, ending that she was committing these horrible acts against her children because she just couldn't take the, uh, not knowing. And what struck me when I read it in the Puritan diary of this, uh, the governor, um, was that these kids kept getting saved. And that's what stood out to me. That was the detail that really stood out. And and that was certainly not the focus of the community at the time or her or as far as I can tell, people who have read or written about it. But to me, that's what jumped out is the the incredible luck um, that in both instances, these somebody was just happened to be walking by and was able to jump in and save these kids. And so to me, um, again, it's like pulling out these these uh it's almost like reading th- reading for the gaps in the story and finding um some kind of beauty or s- s- something something really human and humane and, and beautiful so yeah that you know as a sermon i don't know if it would work for a congregation but uh as a sermon for myself and how i live in the world without uh the old religious faith that i have uh this is what gets me through well i mean the first rule of thumb for a sermon is don't put people to sleep and that would put no one to sleep so it succeed on That's that good. <laughs> it would certainly succeed on that score of right i want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question do you like this podcast do you enjoy it do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning afternoon or evening routine or while you're exercising or while you're caught and frustrated in traffic do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes or even just a solid maybe would you do something for me would you consider becoming a patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month or 
more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David and Winona Babico, Michael Butera, Peter Stegenwald, Samantha Blythe, Sari Graham, Jordan and Danny Morseberger, Josh Redder, Ellis Brazil, David Zoll, Jonathan Butrin, Ben DeHart, Charlotte Donlin, Stephen Rowe, Andrew Stravitz, Jim Kress, and Liam O'Brien. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. You say something else in in a in a part of the book. It's written in April in a chapter called Narcissus, and you said that somebody in a uh, in a in a class uh, um, was in a poetry class or something. Somebody said it was. Yes. Yeah. How many more springs will each of you get? And you say it was the kind of carpe diem sentiment one is liable to hear in a poetry class. But the motto didn't work its revitalizing magic on me. It never does. Spring is here, but it doesn't care about me or you or poetry. We don't seize the day. The day seizes us. And I mean, there's parts of this. I asked you about the sermon because there's, there's parts in, in the book all throughout where I feel like the weather stands in for God or the deity or like, I mean, so here you kind of, and it, as I was reading, I was thinking about something, a theologian and ethicist from Duke University, Stanley Harrow, said, you know, real great, we don't choose great traditions. They choose us. Right. And that's why they're right. powerful, right? If you choose, I mean, the, the, the tough thing, I think that why there's so much kind of temptation and nihilism in a, in a culture that's sort of contemporary, late modern and pluralist is that you feel like you have to choose what's significant in a kind of, right. from a capitalistic kind of thing. You, you, have, you only have the narrative tradition that you choose from positions of autonomy, which puts a lot of pressure to, you know, because again, you need to be seized. Like, right. Like, right. You, can't, you can't seize it. So I was thinking, like, is is part of the power of this the dark side of the whole predestination thing? You know, it, 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 it is the sort of you know reprobate and the elect and all that stuff. But is the right. psychological power of it that that we control very little, and most of the time when we try to like be be your best self now, what, well, what's my shitty self? For you? When you're saying that, what what am I? <laughs> but but isn't it like oftentimes when we're the fullest expression of our uh, of our of our most integrated selves or something? Usually we didn't try to do that. Like it was, it was a gift out yes. of our control. And the moment we try to control it, we usually ruin it. I mean, I wonder if that's the animating spirit behind some of that, like Augustinian Calvinism. It's sort of like it's not, and it, you know, it, it, it's not something it, that, that comes about by sort of libertine effort. Yeah, let me, uh, let me, let me uh, second what you're saying from the perspective of a writer. Let's say so. Um, I've taken a lot of creative writing classes on this academic, uh, journey I went on and you can, you know, you go to readings, you're, you're reading, you're asking other authors about their process. You're reading tons of other authors and essentially it can, it can feel like what you're doing is that you're going to go out and find a bunch of, um, authors you love, writerly voices that, that, that speak to you. And you're going to kind of combine them and create your own literary, unique literary voice. And I think what you discover is that that's not how it works. It's not like 
supermarket shopping, you know, um, where you're just throwing things in a, in a carriage and then you check out you I think you really are born with your, with who you're, you are who you are and your voice is what your voice is. And I think the process for a writer is not so much to, um, create a, uh, their own distinct voice as much as to discover what their distinct voice already is and to, and then to accept it. I mean, I, it's like anybody who's heard their voice on a voice when they're, you know, when your voicemail plays back your own message and you hear your voice and you think, Oh my God, that that's how I sound. Uh, but there's nothing for it. You have to accept it and, and embrace it. And so, yeah, I, I, I totally think that there's, we live in a time of illusion, um, where we think we are creating ourselves. I, I don't think we create ourselves. I think we discover who we are. When you experienced writer's block, were, were you worried that like, wait, maybe I don't have a voice? You know, yeah. It, it, one of the things that had been blocking me is that I'd been, I'd been writing a lot of poetry before this and in a very specific kind of tradition, a lyric poetry tradition. And it's very difficult to get information into a lyric poem. It, it kind of kills the poem. And I like information. Uh, you know, I, that's, that's like, uh, r- great raw material for me. And so when I switched over to writing these kind of short essays, all of a sudden I could bring in something I had read about this, you know, Puritan women, uh, woman who was tossing her kids into, into water, um, and make something out of it because that's the material that really, uh, sticks in my brain and that, that was haunting me at the time. And I was, I was trying to use a form that sort of didn't allow what I really cared about and what I really wanted to write about. So again, it was, you know, yeah, I'd love to, uh, have produced a book of poems and, and be a capital P poet. Uh, but again, you, I don't think, I think you've got to give up some of that control and, and go with, uh, where your heart is really taking you and where you really are, you know, and who you really are. So this, this form, uh, fit much better. Yeah. And and these kind of short essays, it, it is interesting because they do, recreate what moments like when you are in in nature whether on a beach and reflecting on something and and that you do the forum does a nice job i think of describing what those experiences are like because that's what is what human experience is like right we're we're here in one moment and then all of a sudden something else does seize us right this yes and 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 so is it is it that the i mean the form seems to do justice to that to capture like what you were experiencing on those Sundays in a way, maybe another form wouldn't do as easily. Right. Exactly. And I, and they're very improvisational. And that was one of the great things about starting with the weather is because you always started on kind of solid ground. I knew what, I, you know, I, I knew what I would talk about in the first paragraph for each of these. It was right there in front of me. I should open a window or walk outside. Uh, but then it could become like the poet Billy Collins talks about his poems as travel literature. But they're imaginative travel literature. He's not going anywhere, but he's, he's going on an imaginative trip. And so, um, yeah, I would sort of free associate and see, see where my mind took me. And I have to say, I think, uh, you know, technology kind of now crowds out those moments of reflection where you can let your mind wander and, and really track it and, and discover, um, discover things about, uh, what's, what's, um, kind of haunting you. I feel like we, you know, if uh, we just immediately s- vomit something out into the, into cyberspace and just short circuit that. And so, um, 
this was this is kind of the like the old magic of writing something on your own about a personal private experience in reflection and then sticking it in a bottle, throwing it in the waves and hoping that someone's going to pick that bottle up down the road and, and, and listen and take it out and read it. It's a very indirect old way of doing things, but I still believe in it. You tell this story in a section called the chess game where you walked into the White Horse Tavern, which is yes. on the West Coast, right? No, it's actually in New York City. It's oh, okay. in the West Okay, Village, I, I, I don't know why I thought it was West Coast. Maybe because I, I know this White Horse Inn and radio yeah, show, sure ra- radio show yeah. that comes out of California, but for some reason, the, yeah. So it's in New York, right? And you go in and yeah. order 18 whiskeys. And why was that? That's can, right. Can you tell the story? Like, this is such a great story. <laughs> yeah, so Dil- famously, Dylan Thomas, the Welsh poet who was a great uh, orator and a uh, declaimer of his own poetry, went on a uh, tour to America and he was kind of a, phenomenon but he was like uh sort of the amy winehouse or some of his generation just uh really struggling with uh addiction and that was part of it had become part of his public image and mystique and so yeah he was in new york on tour and he went into this famous bar in new york uh and he ordered 18 whiskeys or, or and um yeah and he and he died uh so of alcohol poisoning um and we sort of, it's, it's fascinating because we, we know of that because he was being followed at the time by a private detective who was kind of, that's a story I'm really interested in. We know a little bit about his last days because he was being followed. But, um, yeah, so, so I, I kind of, I remember, yeah, I lived in, in New York for a couple, for some years during grad school. And one day I went in there and sort of sarcastically ordered, you know, the same amount. Um, just, just as a joke. And the bartender had definitely heard this a number of times because she didn't even look up and she just said, uh, yeah, I'll give these to you only if you promise to die. <laughs> and so she was not amused because, you know, I guess like anybody else at a, uh, macabre tourist attraction, you get, it gets old. So yeah. That's that a was, really that's raw a response. <laughs> like I like, you know, <laughs> It, well, in her defense, it was very crowded. She was harried behind the <laughs> behind the bar, getting a bunch of drinks, and here was this pretentious grad student trying to be funny. So, but uh, I mean, I I, it, it, I actually found it really funny, and uh, you know, I wasn't, I didn't feel like I'd been slapped. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I laughed, but um, yeah, it's interesting. You know, I've always been uh, I, I've always been really attracted to these historical sites. I actually last night. I was in Emily Dickinson's bedroom for quite a while. Um, I did a reading at the house and, and then I got a private, um, kind of tour of the upstairs and I got to hang out in her bedroom. So I've always found, um, what did you feel there? I mean, did you, what, like, what was that experience? Like, how, like, how long did you spend and what, how did it yeah, feel? I, yeah. It was probably for like 15 minutes in her bedroom. I had been there maybe four years, three or four years ago. And at that time, the walls had been white. And when I went back this time, they had, you know, due to the constant kind of archaeology being done on the house, they had uh, recovered a swath of old wallpaper and then recreated it. Um, and and so there was a floral kind of rose print now on the walls. And it, and it's amazing. The wallpaper completely changed the experience because four years ago, it really her room with the white bare walls felt very monastic and sort of Merton-esque. And then when I went back uh, with this rose w- wallpaper it uh, took away some of that feeling to me. It, it felt um, a little more commonplace and like, okay, yeah, a real person lived here who maybe wasn't 
this extraterrestrial being, but a, uh, an actual woman who wanted some nice wallpaper on her wall. And, uh, but that is interesting in itself because, you know, the, the mystique is wonderful. Uh, but, but also getting closer to the, the flesh and blood is, 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 uh, just as valuable because it makes you see it in a different way and it's a little more real. So it was great. I mean, I didn't, you know, she didn't waltz into the room. I didn't, there was no spectral orbs wandering through, but you can't help but feel, um, the, I mean, especially Emily Dickinson, who, who was so reclusive and spent so many years in that house. I mean, she really, the house does feel soaked with her presence because she wasn't like Robert Frost kind of was all over the place. There's like three Robert Frost farm, you know, houses. He, he, he lived in so many different places, but Emily Dickinson was there her entire adult life. So you, yeah, it does feel sort of a bit like static electricity. Um, is just kind of her everywhere, just her kind of spirit and, uh, and just knowing her poems so well and having read them since I was a kid. Um, yeah, it does feel like everything's got a spark to it. When the first thing I ever, before I even read your book, I listened to an audio essay you did about the visual impairment you developed and then having to pick your own digital, like who your Siri voice would be, right? Yes. Who you, cause you, cause you'd, you'd become more dependent on a different kind of technology because of, could, could you say that audio essay? I'll link to it in the show notes because it's, it's fantastic. Um, and I'll be great. And it's funny. And yeah, it's very deep vulnerable disclosure at the same time my wife never listened to it just the way you describe these voices is so perfect like do you give the personalities <laughs> these digital voices it's just amazing but i mean what how long ago like how did that how did the visual impairment develop like what how serious is it and, and, and what i mean especially someone that's not going to make it easier <laughs> writing i mean i, I would no, I, mean, no. I mean could you say i mean what was that experience like developing it and in, 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 i mean i would think it, it's got to be terrifying on some level right <laughs> like, i mean yeah, well, yeah, so I, it kind of, I mean, I had, it started when I was a teenager, uh, and I, I but it would kind of, um, come and go a little bit, uh, but it really, the curtain kind of came down about like eight and a half years ago where it really became problematic for me to read for long periods. Um, I can, you know, I feel like there's a lot of people out there who wrestle with some kind of disability or chronic pain where you sort of appear okay on the outside. You can get through, uh, a lot of daily tasks, but you're in pain a lot. You've, you've made a lot of sacrifices in your life. In my case, I cannot sit down and just read a book. I cannot just sit down and stare at a computer screen, um, and write something for a long period of time. Um, uh, but, and you kind of live privately with that. And th so this actually, it's only been recently, to, I've been talking about it publicly, but it's been going on for a really long time. And, um, yeah, so, so in my case, uh, especially when it really got, it really got worse about eight or nine years ago, it felt again, like I talked about taking the weather personal, it felt so specific, uh, such a specific kind of like arrow shot from the heavens because, you know, we always like humans are water based creatures. I'm pretty sure I was like an ink based creature growing up. I just read all the time. That was my whole life. I mean, that's what I cared about. That was, it, it was my life. And then to not be able to live like that. I mean, I honestly felt very, like I still feel homesick, you know, because I, books felt like my home. And now I can still experience books. It's just a robotic voice will be reading them to me or I'll be listening to an audiobook. It's not the same. Um, but, um, 
I had to go through that grieving process and also go through the process of uh, not feeling like a vindictive God had personally shot me down because to be honest, who else, especially nowadays, wouldn't uh, suffer mightily with a given a visual disability? I mean, I, I could have wanted to be in a pilot. You know, that would not have been good to have an eye problem as a pilot. So, you know, for a while, I felt especially singled out by uh, a malevolent God. But I, I'm 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 past that. You know, you do get past that stage, and and you find workarounds and. Then, if you're lucky, and I don't feel like this every hour of the day, but sometimes what you can do is is eventually take that limitation and that pain, and again create something out of it, right through, right from it. Um, because ultimately, I mean, I've I've come to believe when something really terrible happens, it can close you off or it can open you up, and. Um, I, I would I would like this experience and, and and other difficult experiences to open me up and and soften me up, and not harden me. So, um, doing that audio essay was very cathartic. I uh, it, it kind of talks about my Goldilocks problem of picking a an automated voice. Like for people who don't know, like I'm thinking of you know the kind of voices like at ATM machines or like you know or now series like the most famous voice Alexa. Uh, but but when I was doing this, they it wasn't really widespread. They didn't wasn't in the public consciousness these computerized voices. So I had you know a bunch to choose from, and so I sort of went through them one by one and decided which one felt most like me and I felt most comfortable writing with. Because when you use this program that I use to write mostly, it's called Voiceover. As you type, it reads back what you've written, and that's how you get your feedback. That's how you know you can you can toggle back to the paragraph before, and it will read it back to you. So you're just totally using audio feedback. And um, so I kind of did this uh, this tryout, <laughs> this audition with these different voices. It was like uh, American Idol for these computerized voices. And uh, I've you know, and so this audio essay, I talk about that experience and why I. Well, you know why I eliminated the ones I did and why I picked the winner. Why, why did you start talking more about the disability publicly? I, you know, I think it's you know to to if I can relate it to the to this experience of writing this book, I I kind of changed the way I thought about my relationship to readers and to other people. Um, I was a real perfectionist before. Uh, I thought when you write something, you know, you're creating this persona, this performance. Uh, but as I've gotten older, uh, it's, I'm much more interested in a more intimate, real, authentic connection with the reader and with other people. And so it was just kind of growing up, to be honest. And, and again, letting go of the kind of, uh, some of the stuff you have when you're young, some of that idealized, uh, perfectionism and part of that is just being honest and this is just what my life is like now and 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 also i don't know if i could have talked about it when it was first going on because it was so confusing and upsetting and uh but now uh, to you know i it used to be the first thing i thought about when i woke up last thing i thought about when i went to bed uh and now i, I really don't think about it that much i mean it's it's kind of amazing what time will do and how used you, you can get to kind of anything it's interesting when you were saying that about pain either closing you or opening you. I was thinking of that line in Hemingway in Farewell to Arms, right, where he says, the world breaks everyone, and afterward, uh, many are stronger, are strong in the broken places, but those that will yes. not break, it kills. Right, right. 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 Um, yeah, 
I you know, in me if I was to if I was to put my twist on Hemingway, uh which I'm ego <laughs> have the ego to do. Um I would say that the strength at those broken places is the possibly the strength to be honest and open and to connect with other people. Um because I think that's what being strong is. Um so yeah, I you know, it's not, I don't think it's a I don't think, uh, you know, develop, trying to develop armor in the face of a disability or pain, chronic pain, you know, that's not going to last. That's not a long-term strategy. That might get you through the, a short-term, uh, experience. But if you're going to have, keep, ha- if you're going to have a life, uh, that, that's going to, um, where you're going to be carrying, uh, this burden, um, armor is not going to, it's just going to, it's just going to weigh you down. You know, I mean, these essays are very, I mean, they're they're personal in nature, and that they're reflecting on your experience, but they reflect on the human condition. You know, as as you're experiencing, you know, the various seasons in New England. You you don't write a lot about love, right? Right. So yeah, that now that it's fascinating to me because it's it's a pretty <laughs> primal part of the human story. So is it a uh, is it a like it's it's an omission that that begs. Uh, asking, asking why? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, I think um, Donna Tart said a books are written by the alone for the alone, and uh, I really it, it the, the love is in the book, uh, but in this way, it, I'm trying to make the writer, uh, the reader, fall in love with me. Mm-hmm. That's where that's where the love is. It's going to be between me and the reader. Um, it, it, you know, okay, I've given away some of the game, but that, that, I mean, that, that is, you know, that, that's, I think that's why a lot of writers write. Um, and I think that's something that writing still can do because, um, it's, there's a strange distance again in time and space between the writer and the reader, but it's, it, if it's, if it's, I think if it's, if it's done well and if it's done with heart, that's the goal. And, and I've certainly experienced that as a reader. I've fallen in love with writers. Um, so yeah. You say at the end of the book, um, uh, Robert Frost was afraid of the dark. James Joyce was afraid of thunder. While working the docks in New York City, Herman Melville daydreamed that one day he and Shakespeare would run into each other on the street and get drunk together on rum punch. This was impossible, of course. What is possible is that one day you and I will run into each other and get, dr- get on the street and get drunk together on rum punch. I would totally get drunk with you on rum punch if we're ever in the same town. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. You, uh, this is a great book. Thank you for writing it, and and thank you for taking time to talk about it with me. Yeah, I'm so honored to be on your show. Thank you so much. Oh, the honor was all mine. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you've found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks again to Will for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Areas of Fog. It's available wherever books are sold. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take.
Until next time, friends, fare thee well.